There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This week on Catch and Shoot 2.0, injuries continue to have an impact on the NBA playoffs. Who will eventually win out this war of attrition? Also, we are a week away from the NBA draft combine and lottery. Which prospects will most be under the microscope in Chicago? We find out that and more from someone who knows the ins and outs of the draft and this show. But first, Darlene, let's get to it. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot 2.0 goes well with both red and white and is perfect with the workout of your choice. Our hosts are Aaron Berlin, a former Kansas Jayhawk who believes the Orlando Magic will win the championship. Eventually. (laughs) His partner is Otto Strong, a man who has covered the NBA since before Dennis Rodman got his first tattoo. Fellas? Welcome to Catch and Shoot 2.0. I am Aaron Berlin, along with my partner this week, filling in for the one and only Otto Strong, who is out on vacation. He is the king of content. He is my boss. He is your friend. He is Bruce Bernstein. Bruce, how's it going, my man? Hey, uh, thank you for welcoming me. I have Otto tied up in the closet, bound and gagged, so he's really not on vacation. I'm holding him that's, hostage. That's, that's just so what I can we join say you to people, week. right? That's, that's that? just what we say. Anytime <laughs> Bruce does something suspicious, we always just say they're out on vacation or they're <laughs> sick, right? Like, like that's what it's about. Totally but, under the weather. Otto so, is definitely <laughs> so, so, so the main reason Otto is not on this show is because Bruce really wanted to talk about Sons and Four and what that has meant on Twitter and the uh, viral nature that that clip has taken on. But, but first off, Bruce, Props to that guy for calling his shot, calling the Suns in four. Got it done in four. They're on to the Western Conference Finals. Did that surprise you at all? I, I am so impressed with Phoenix. I really am. I mean, going into the season, I really expected them to take a major step forward. I mean, between having Chris Paul on the team and Monty Williams, who was my preseason choice for coach of the year, and I thought he got screwed out of it. I thought Tom Thibodeau was fantastic, but I thought Monty Williams deserved that award. Um, but boy, oh boy, I mean, you know, they're great times down in Phoenix. It's been a long drought for them, but uh, it's a great franchise. And I'm so happy for Chris Paul because he's on the way to getting that, that monkey off his back. And uh, he's a Hall of Famer already, but it would sure be nice to see him take even another step forward in his, on his resume. What do you think? My biggest question, and I think you can answer this because you have watched so much more basketball than I have over my, I like to say still young, 31 years, but I I am always open to learning from the greats. Why has this worked out so well for Chris Paul? I, I get it. Devin Booker is a dead on shooter, a great, he has a high basketball IQ. He can score in bunches. DeAndre Ayton is a developing center. So they not only have the shooting, they have the download presence, but why I can't figure this out for the life of me, Bruce, why this has worked so well with him in Phoenix, as opposed to the previous steps. It worked well in Los Angeles. Don't get me wrong. Like they were close on a lot of things. They just ran into some really good teams. At this age, with Chris Paul, where he's at, why has this worked so well? If you look at the makeup of their team, okay, they've got a lot of young guys who are extremely talented. You've got Devin Booker, of course. You've got DeAndre Ayton. Then you sort of have some of these role player types that are sort of veterans. You know, a guy like Jay Crowder, a legitimate tough guy. A guy like Dario Saric, who's been around for a while. And then you have a coach, Monty Williams, and he and Chris Paul go back quite a ways. They were together in New Orleans back when it was the New Orleans Hornets, okay, before the Pelicans were there. So when you have a coach and a Hall of Fame point guard that are totally on the same page, and then you have a bunch of young veterans 
who when Chris Paul walks into the room, I mean, there's no question who the leader is on that team, right? And when he has the kind of game that he had over the weekend where he pours in 37 points in a, in a clinching game, um, what you have is just kind of like a conductor of an orchestra who knows exactly when to give him the ball. He knows how to, how to you know, not give this guy the ball. He's just, he controls the game. He probably, I, I'm, I'm not going to put him ahead of LeBron James, but I would say he's probably 1A as far as greatest leaders of a team in the NBA right now. Yeah, the, the notes that he is playing right now is a perfect symphony, right? Like he is hitting everything in tune. This team is hitting its stride. And it really has felt like since they took down the Lakers in the opening round, that that pretty much cleared every obstacle that they thought that maybe they would have. Because I think initially that if you were a Suns fan and you're like, oh, damn it, now we got the Lakers in the opening round. Well, the way they dismantled that Lakers team, and granted, people are going to put this as a caveat because Anthony Davis got hurt. But you know what? Anthony Davis is routinely hurt. So it's not that big of a surprise that he was hurt in that series. But to get past the LeBron obstacle, to get past the defending champs, it seemed like they know where they are now and they know what their ceiling is and they're reaching it. And that's a very tough thing to do in the playoffs. And the Western Conference is perhaps the most... I don't want to say it's the most intriguing side of the bracket because I'm really interested in what goes on in the East and what happens with that Bucks and Nets series now. But let's stay in the West right now. Jazz Clippers game four is full disclosure. We are recording this on a Monday night. So game four is tonight. This is a 2-1 series right now between the Jazz and the Clips. Clippers got a little bit of revenge in game three. Thought Paul George finally kind of came to life in this series. What did you see from that game, Bruce? The Clippers found themselves down 0-2 in the first round. And those first two losses were at home, right? So they had to come back and, and, and win the series after being down 0-2 at home. They repeated at this time, being down 0-2, but this time they were down 0-2 on the road. So they come home, and they played like a desperate team the other day. And I totally agree with you about Paul George. I've not always been the biggest fan of PG-13 because I always felt like talented as can be, has an all-around skill set. But some, something was missing there. I'm not quite sure what it was. But right now, the way he's playing, he's, he's making smart plays. He's not trying to do too much. He'll still take some bad shots once in a while. But he's made plays where he got himself in traffic and dished off some little pocket passes for easy hoops to his teammates, making a lot more uh, winning-type plays. And, of course, you know, playing with Kawhi Leonard, you know, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to be the guy. He's yeah. kind of Robin. He's not Batman. And that's probably a good role for him. So I would say, um, I think you still have to favor the Jazz, Aaron. But I could easily see the Clippers winning game four and, and making this a best out of three series. I mean, uh, right? I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you feel, do you feel the Jazz are still pretty much in control? Or is it more of like a toss-up at this point? No, the, the Jazz are still 100% in control. I, I, I have a series, or I have a theory, that any time in a series when a team goes down 2-0, the team that, is, that wins game three, most notably the team that is down 2-0, plays with a sense of desperation and uh, want to, that a team that feels like that it's en route to a series win does not. And I thought that Clippers team played like a desperate team the other night. And look, you know, sometimes a desperate team does find something, right? Like case in point, the Bucks down two nothing. What was everyone writing about? The Bucks are done in this series. The Nets are on their way to an Eastern Conference Finals appearance. And what have the Bucks done? They've come back to level at a two two. So it's possible that in Game Three it can be a watershed moment. Um, I don't think that's the case in this series. I feel like the Jazz are still in control. I think this is probably a six-game or a six-game series. Um, but it was interesting to watch the Clippers kind of come back to life. But I'm not – I can't buy into them yet, Bruce, because I am very much – and a lot of people will say that the regular season does not matter and that uh, teams can just flip a switch in the playoffs. I'm not of that mindset. This Jazz team and this Suns team have been on a collision course all season long. And, you know, really the Nuggets were there up until a couple of injuries sidelined them. But they have been some of the top teams in the Western Conference all year long. And I think at this point, it would be a shame if that was not the Western Conference Finals that we got. So I'm all Jazz and Suns. Well, you know, it'll be that, you know, chances are that's what we're going to be looking at. 
and it will be interesting because to to have the Western Conference finalists come from you know a Phoenix and a Salt Lake City maybe won't be the best ratings uh, bonanza for ABC uh, in the finals. But I'll tell you what, some of the individual matchups that you're looking at there are going to be very good. I hope that Michael Conley uh, is able to regain his health and come back and play because to they see really the chess him. match between Conley and Chris Paul kind of going mano a mano against each other, that's not going to be, I mean, look, everyone talks about Donovan Mitchell. Everyone talks about Devin Booker, Rudy Gobert, DeAndre Ayton. There's some really good individual matchups there. But for me, seeing two crafty veterans like that going up against each other, that to me it will be a lot of fun to watch if, if it ends up working out. So you mentioned the Bucks net series, Aaron. Uh, it took a major turn on Sunday uh, after Kyrie Irving came down on Giannis's foot and uh, ended up in a walking boot and probably, you know, he's probably going to be missing. I'm not going to say the rest of the series, but even if he comes back, it's not going to be the same. I mean, how do you feel things have turned in that series? So I'm, I'm going to put it this way, Bruce, my, our fr friend of the show, Jared Greenberg put out a tweet that I wholeheartedly agreed with. And I had a friend who works in the Nets front office. So he's clearly wearing black and white Nets rose-colored goggles, right? Like he sees everything through a Nets prism. And the tweet by Jared Greenberg said, in, in basic essence, why did we expect a team that has not been healthy all year to remain healthy throughout the course of the NBA playoffs, right? Teams that are not typically healthy throughout the course of the regular season rarely stay healthy throughout the course of the playoffs. Why? Intensity of games picks up. The there's a lot more travel involved. Uh, it's more wear and tear on your body. And so inevitably that if you're an injured team throughout the course of the season, you're probably going to get injured in the playoffs, right? It's, it's just math. It's basic probability of how that season has played out for you. So when the Nets were healthy throughout the course of this playoff run, I think everybody was like, if this team can stay healthy, they are by far and away the best team in the NBA right now. Well, now Kevin Durant's pretty much having to learn what it's like to shoulder a team all by yourself. And we've seen LeBron do this a handful of times in the playoffs. We've seen him carry teams that had no business making the finals into the NBA finals. And now Kevin Durant is going to be tasked with doing just that. And so it'll be interesting if we can see this Nets team kind of take on his persona, his character, and if he can have that alpha dog mentality because he's been avoiding this for so long, right? He's never gone to a team where he's been the only guy that a team relied on. Well, now he's going to have to do it against this Giannis and Bucks team, which is really good, which we spoke about a few weeks ago on this show. They were like, it finally feels like the Bucks are back. We hadn't talked about them much throughout the course of the regular season. They'd had some flameouts in the playoffs. Now this series is back to 2-2. It's a sprint to the finish. And if it's Durant opposite of Giannis, the rest of the way in this series with a little bit of Middleton in between, I'm taking the Bucks. I think that uh, the Bucks have definitely put themselves in position. Uh, unfortunately, the injuries have, uh, as you, you know, described so well, really compromised the Nets' chances. But look, Kevin Durant is a Hall of Fame player, okay? Mm -hmm. Kevin Durant is a great two-way player. He can play some defense. He's obviously a scoring machine. Uh, if Kevin Durant can somehow drag this Nets team into, a, into the Eastern Conference Finals after what he's gone through, um, it will be the greatest achievement of his career, and that will probably include his role in two championships where he won Finals MVP twice with Golden State. But as you pointed out, he had lots of help on that team. He's not going to get a whole lot of help in the next two or three games against Milwaukee. If he's lucky, Joe Harris will remember how to make a, an open shot outside. Um, but, you know, they're pretty thin. I mean, Nick Claxton is a nice player. Jeff Green's a nice player. They got no chance of stopping Giannis in any meaningful way. Um, but I was curious about another thing that has been sort of talked about uh, since Sunday. A lot of people are saying, gee, you know, how, you know, Giannis should have got a, a flagrant foul for when Kyrie came down on his foot, you know, they call that. But to me, I looked at that, Aaron, and, and I didn't see any intent on Giannis's part. Um, that was kind of a lot of traffic under the hoop. Um, 
and I haven't seen anything on uh, Monday afternoon about any kind of upgrading of anything against Giannis. So where, where do you stand on that? Did you see that as sort of like an unfortunate incidental thing or were you, did you see it as something more? Look, in basketball, plays like that happen all the time. I think it's unfortunate that Kyrie was injured on the play, but I don't think it was a hurtful play by Giannis. If we're arguing anything was a hurtful play, which I'm of the mindset that this was a basketball play and this was a non-aggressive play, but the ball slap by Nikola Jokic, right, in the Suns and Nuggets game. Look, players play with a different level of intensity in the NBA playoffs. They right? It's a sprint to who can get to four games faster. And that's what it is. And you're going to do everything that you can to win those four games as quick as you can. If something happens, it happens because I'll tell you what the shoving that these guys do, whether it's coming off the screen or it's barreling towards the hoop, that's more aggressive than anything that we saw from those questionable calls by Giannis or Jokic. And I, I think it's unfortunate someone got hurt, but I've never really seen Giannis make a play that I felt like was a dirty play or felt like was a bad intention play. And I have a hard time saying that that happened there. So yeah. that's where I stand on that. Um, you mentioned the Jokic uh, situation uh, in game four. I felt bad for, for the Joker because Joker's a clean player. He's not a dirty yeah. player. That was a frustration. The fact that he kind of brushed down on, on Cam's nose there was not intentional, but you know, the way the rules are set up now, right. With these flagrant fouls, it became sort of like an automatic uh, call. Um, I mean, Denver wasn't winning that series anyway, but you feel bad that the most valuable player of the league kind of goes out on a sour note like that. And uh, you know, I don't have a whole lot else to add about that except one thing, because I know our producer, Dan Kramer, is telling us, you know, we've been going on a while and we need to wrap this up. If Atlanta, who we haven't talked about, can somehow or another play the Jazz in the final, it would be Bojan Bogdanovich against Bogdan Bogdanovich. <laughs> and all I can say is, Mike Breen, prayers up for you having to announce that one. We're sorry, man. We're sorry. Nobody deserves that kind of treatment, especially in the NBA Finals. All right, Bruce, we've talked a lot about the NBA All-Stars of today, but are you ready to talk about some future NBA All-Stars of tomorrow? Without a doubt, and we have just the guy. Well, today is a fun day on Catch and Shoot 2.0 as the past meets the present as we welcome in the former co-host of this show. He is the one and only Adam Stanko, who is also now a coordinating producer with the Pac-12 Network. Adam, man, I've heard a lot about you, and we're going to bring in Bruce here in a second because Bruce never shuts up about the job that you did. But, man, this is great to have you on, and thanks for taking the time, man. Uh, well, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to jump on. It's, uh, <laughs> it's been fun watching from afar. And uh, Bruce knows how much I love him. And so just getting a chance to do this with you guys is a blast. So thank you. Aaron, uh, just to, to let you know, here, here's what I think of Adam Stanko. He is without a doubt one of the most brilliant basketball minds I've ever known. And I've worked with some people, okay? <laughs> this guy right here is the real deal, always has been. And uh, having him on our show today is just a real treat and sort of a closing the circle a little bit, as it were. See, see, Adam, this is why it's hard to live in the shadow that you and Noah cast, because I hear these comments each and every day. But no, man, we, we I, I appreciate Well, I think we should just time. end the podcast now because I'm good. I'm good. I, 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 absolutely. We have, we have filled you with comp or compliments before we ever get to the basketball content. But needless to say, uh, you know, to build off that. To build off what Bruce said, you are one of the better minds when it comes to evaluating prospects and really understanding kind of what NBA teams might be thinking. And really one of the most fun aspects that a lot of people don't get a lot of coverage of, and I don't think it's built up enough. And it has been in recent years with them not only moving the draft night lottery to the same place that the Combine's at in Chicago, but for people who are not familiar with how the combine and the draft lottery operate now, can you kind of give them a peek inside of what this week is really like in NBA circles? Well, the process is, is kind of crazy. And, and last year was, you know, obviously an aberration, but, but what, what sort of happens is since the college basketball season ends, then you have this whole long process where the kids now are going off to their different places where they get an opportunity to really 
sharpen up their skills, but as it's going to pertain to the team workouts. And that's really what everybody's looking forward to is the, is the team workouts. And then you head into, as you talk about the combine in Chicago, um, we've got, you know, the draft lottery, the combine in Chicago, and really what, what's taking place. First of all, the lottery is going to determine obviously where guys are going to be selected and how people are going to view the draft this year in particular, there are some guys, I mean, I went to recently just watch, Davion Mitchell of Baylor and Keon Johnson of Tennessee. I went and saw them work out in person. Um, also, uh, Roko Perkachin, a kid who's from Croatia, who's deciding whether to stay in the draft, outstanding young talent there. And, and really what it's about for guys like Davion Mitchell and Keon Johnson, like they can sort of control their own fate. So they're sort of looking at the draft, not so much how high will they go, but what's the best scenario for them. And as it relates to the combine, the big talk among agents and the people you speak to now is how important the interview portion of this is. So the combine goes and you get the measurables and everybody's sort of in the same place and you can get an eye test of, oh, okay, that guy actually looks small compared to this guy or what have you. But even more so, I think what's significant is just this idea that you'll sit down with the kids and really get a sense of who they are. Um, and that's the cool part about watching guys work out in person. Uh, people think about individual workouts and team workouts. It's like, why did this guy's stock elevate? Well, because a few years ago, I got to see Donovan Mitchell in person. And when Donovan Mitchell is doing his workouts, you see his energy, you see his enthusiasm, you see his charisma, and you see how much he's rooting on the guys he's working out with. And you can tell he's just this natural born leader. And you could pick that up in a workout. You could see his work ethic. And those are the kinds of things teams are looking for now, more so than, you know, how many threes they're making in a certain drill or, you know, what's their handle really like. And, and so you can get a sense of the measurables at the combine, but what's really changed for this week in particular is just the interviews and how much teams really want to know about character. And that's changed over the last five to 10 years where teams now care much less about your pure natural talent and more so about your chemistry. So Adam, there's uh, approximately 350 early entry uh, guys in the draft. And in recent years, the trend has really been that, you know, if you're a four year college player or if your age starts with a two, you're almost seen as like, you know, an old man. So do you see that trend continuing or, or, or are some of the more mature guys going to get a little bit more consideration near the top of the draft? It's, it's interesting, Bruce, because you, you look at last year, and I think it's the first eight or nine guys are all 19 years old. And so obviously it's a result of the one and done era. And it is, it's, it's, it's a case where teams pick guys apart the more time that they're in school. And, and really you talk to, front agent folks and you talk to um, all executives around the league and scouts and they'll tell you if they're being honest with you the number one stat the number one measurable that they care about is age it's the first thing you tell them that you have a 17 year old kid from Serbia who's outstanding they're going to value that kid over anyone that's in the college game right now and the example of course you look at last year's draft and you take Obi Toppin, who's 22, I think, at the time of the draft, and James Wiseman, who's 19. And if you watch both those guys play, and obviously very small sample size for Wiseman at Memphis, but if you watch them play, you would say, wow, Toppin does so many things on the court well, and I, I really love his vision, and I love the fact that he steps outside and shoots the ball well. Obviously, he's a terrific athlete. Wow, his body is so developed. You say Toppin, but then if you say, okay, if I could have James Wiseman in three years, now, who, who do I really want? And so that's really how, how the game's changed. And I think you look at it now, it's still a case of the one-and-done guys. And the real actual question for this year's draft is going to be, how do the kids that play with the G League uh, Ignite team here in Walnut Creek in the Bay Area, how are those kids going to be evaluated compared to where they were evaluated at the beginning of the year? Because they're also one-and-done kids, but they've played professionally now. And, the, and so the new change that you're starting to see are all these kids that are looking for alternate routes to the NBA, whether that's overseas, the G League, these other, other teams, the overtime team that's being set up now. All, all, the, all the setups that are taking place um, in, in sort of high school to pros transitionally, like I think it's looking at alternate routes. But the college player sticks around. Um, those guys are getting sort of devalued. Always. I mean, it's going to be the case because – guys realize there's a level of potential there. And, and I think also NBA teams like having that control. I think they feel like, well, if we get nutritionists in there and we have guys working out with the right skill set and the right coaching, we're going to be able to develop them better than the college coaches do. Because a lot of times the college coaches are way more concerned with team concepts 
and making sure the guys play team defense or do things a certain way. They're not so much focused on skill work and individual, you know, drills. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a way for them to not have to basically deprogram someone, right? Like mm-hmm. they can set their gym routine, they can set their nutrition, they can make sure that they are in their system and they have a full understanding of what that, it's basically like a second college, for them, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, like an extended high school for them, getting them into their program. But I really want to go back to what you said about the, the G League Ignite team and the G League in general and this idea of funneling high school kids into the professional ranks, because I think this is the future of where uh, basketball is going. I, I think the college game will still have its purpose and it will meet that purpose. But I think for the top tier talent, maybe the top 15 kids out of high school, I think they're eventually going to be funneled to these secondary leagues. And I think that's a good thing to start. But how are scouts going to evaluate the Ignite team? Because that's really interesting because they were supposed to originally play games against other G League teams. And a lot of people thought that that would be an opportunity to evaluate these kids against kids that were 20, 21, 22, 23 years old and however long they've been in the G League. They had a very condensed window this year to watch them in that G League bubble. What are scouts saying about that? Well, in general, the guys that I've talked to are sort of taking a wait-and-see approach. They, the, the college season in general, and, and, you know, to further that point, I guess, that the G League season, which as you point out, I mean, just tiny this year, such a small sample size. The way that it's sort of being evaluated is they're going to wait and see and how, how these guys have developed. They're not so much going on the tape which in a way is sort of how it was viewed anyway in, in college for the one-and-done guys. I mean, we see it with, like I said, with James Wiseman. You see it with um, LaMelo Ball, like guys that we didn't even see like playing full, full seasons of wherever they were. For Wiseman, obviously, in the college ranks, LaMelo playing um, in the NBL. But like, so same thing with the G League, the big talk. And um, Jalen Green now is working out, I know, in Southern California. And for – for him, it's going to be about, again, same thing. Like, what are the measurables? Uh, physically, where does he stack up? But, guys, the scouts have already seen these guys, whether it's through the UIBL during, you know, the, the, the AU circuit during his, his high school time and, uh, you know, what he did it in the high school ranks. And it's not so much, okay, am I really getting a true test of who he is playing in, in the G League or Kaminga, same thing. It's, it's sort of like – what your beliefs about those kids are were sort of reinforced and people look at it the same kind of way. And, and so it's interesting. It's almost like they're bypassing sort of what happened and they said, all right, we're going to wait it out just like we typically would if the guy spent time in college. But the thing is biases do set in. And so to your point, like, whereas in a given situation, you would say, all right, well, you got the G league and we can evaluate these guys and how he's playing against sort of seasoned pros who, you know, are taking a step down from the NBA level. But yet at the same time, look at someone like Jalen Suggs, who was thought of as being a back-end lottery guy and now is in competition for, for one of those top three spots. So the profile still on the college game uh, raises the, – the, the player's profile gets raised playing in college. And I think that compared to the G League, uh, that, that wasn't really the case this year. And so don't give in to the same sort of biases that we have as, as you know, let's call it casual fans. But we're obviously the diehards, like – you know, looking on the outside and saying, okay, I know what Jalen Suggs, I think I can evaluate who he is. I don't know if I can do the same for Jalen Green or Jonathan Kaminga, but should that hurt them? And that's really going to be the job of these, um, these front offices now, just like they compare international kids or, you know, people going with other routes of, of ways they've tried to get to the NBA. I would still think that they would get some level of a bump for being in an NBA uh, program where they're running through NBA conditioning, nutrition, all, all of that. But, you know, you're right. Like your eyes see what you believe. Like you have to see it to believe it. And if you're taking a guy in the top five, I want to see what he can do against equal to comparable competition. But this also raises the question, do you think that with some with these leagues, like the overtime league and the G League allowing these high school level players, does this make this easier on the NBA to kind of shove the conversation of the one and done to the side and say, now they have an alternate route. We're providing it with our secondary league. We're going to still keep this rule in place. Or does this still bring that to the forefront? I think that that's, I mean, it's an excellent question. I I think that we're going to see the end of the one and done fairly soon. Now, whether this delays that will uh, will remain to be seen because you're right. It does give them an alternate option. Um, But I I think it's really started. I mean, look, you you go back in the history of the, the whole one and done and why this whole thing started. I mean, it really was because 
when Glenn Robinson and, and Sean Bradley are making their way up through the college ranks and being thought of as highly touted prospects coming into the NBA, and then they sign right away and they're the highest paid players on their team. The veterans in the NBA had a huge issue with that. And so the Players Association came back and they start the collective bargaining agreement and say, hey, we need to put in a, a rookie cap. And once that happened and you have a three-year deal to start your career, well, agents then started going back to the college kids and said, or actually the prospects that are in high school and said, hey, you need to get out of here as quickly as possible because you want your clock ticking on that three-year deal because the three-year deal doesn't matter. Let's get to your first big contract. And that's what started the, the high school exodus, which, of course, KG in, in 95 and Kobe in 96. And that started, obviously, you know, McGrady and all those guys, Jermaine O'Neal. That was this huge exodus of, of high school kids going. And all of a sudden now you've got the NBA saying, well, we've got an image problem. The college ranks are upset because NCAA now doesn't have the star power. And they sort of settle on this so one-year minimum. Well, really what the one-year minimum does is it doesn't help anyone out. I mean, the kids are only in school for a few months, if at all, just barely stay eligible in most cases. And then quickly as I can, let me get to the, to the NBA. So really uh, what it's done is, is it's sort of like absolved the NBA from coming up to your point with a solid minor league system. And I think that's really the whole key here. Everyone looks at Major League Baseball and says, well, they have a good system. You get all, everyone's eligible right? Out of high school, you can just, you're all, you don't have to declare for the draft. You just let the market dictate what, who the teams actually want. So then they draft guys out of high school, or you got to wait till after your junior year, and then you get drafted again your senior year. But invest in your minor leagues. And the NBA has not done that. They've relied on college basketball. The G League until the last few years hasn't really been taken seriously. And so I think all of those things now need to come into play. And I, I think you're right. Maybe this delays it, but I think we need to get rid of the, the one and done. But I think we need to totally revamp the, the NBA draft scenario altogether. I want to ask you your opinion of Luca Garza, okay? Now, you would think he's got two strikes against him, even though he's player of the year. Number one, it's kind of a classic low post, 6'11", banger type. And number two, he's a four-year college player. Um, how do you – I mean – in a, in, a, in a normal basketball universe, at least the one I grew up in, this guy would be considered, you know, a high-end, top-tier choice. People would be trading up to get a guy like him. Is that the case? Is Luca Garza that guy? Or is Luca sort of playing a position and, having, and is of an age where his type is kind of being phased out? Well, it's, I mean, it's definitely – it's been phased out the last few years, that, that type of player. But the thing about Luca Garza is that he's – been obviously extremely productive on the college level, but he's also gotten feedback about what he needs to do to be a pro. So he's been successful um, at the college ranks and then now getting advice about what he needs to do. And so the Luca Garza workouts have been all about him showing the ability to shoot the three because ultimately that's, that's the difference with big men now that you now also need to step outside and, and shoot it. If you're not, you know, the, the, the thing is ultimately with the draft, it's looked at like if we're getting a superstar, we can allow that kind of guy to do a little bit of everything. And, you know, whether it's a James Harden, you know, or it's, I mean, we can use all the Nets examples, basically. Kyrie, you know, you get to, you get to sort of do a little bit of everything. You're a distributor, you're a scorer, you're a ball-dominant guard, you play off the ball, whatever. But, but if you're not a superstar and teams only have two or three of those guys, then it has to be about, okay, what am I as a specialist? Because the NBA is, is wonderful at collecting specialists. And so I don't care if it's you are an elite defensive player off the bench or if you are a guy that's just a rim runner and you block shots or you're a rim protector, you're just a shooter, uh, you're a backup uh, point guard that can just basically lead a team. Whatever it is, they need a specialty for, for you to take on. And so if you're a big like Luka Garza and you're not the most athletic big, although he's worked on that and he's slimmed down, you need to be able to show that you can at least score in pick and pop situations because that's what you're going to be used for. And so on one hand, um, he has to show that skill in order to have a chance really to make an impact and play big minutes. On the other hand, there are certain teams that are going to look at a Luka Garza. And I was asked a lot about Drew Timmy during the year from Gonzaga in the same way, because he's sort of a classic like Kevin McHale type, great footwork in the post, didn't really show much range, although he's, he's starting to get there. But the thing is like, a lot of teams are going to look at that, though, and say, well, wait a minute. Garza may have some issues defending, especially if we're switching out on the perimeter or what have you. But on the flip side, someone's got to guard Garza, too. 
So if I put him in the game, unlike a lot of these bigs now who only block shots and, um, you know, pick and roll, they roll to the rim, you know, duck into the rim, what have you. Like, those guys are, might be athletes, but they're not going to be able to score in the same way Garza does. And they're also going to have an issue with Garza scoring on them in the post because they don't usually guard back-to-the-basket guys. Now, that's going to probably mean you're going to have to run some offense for him. But if he can show he can shoot it, and now we already know about his footwork and his, his hands in the post, like, Garza's going to cause you a problem defensively too. So he's going to make for an interesting second unit guy that can score how high you value that and where you draft him. That's going to be team by team. But I do think um, there are some skills that Garza has that are really coveted and his productivity can't be ignored. So I wouldn't be surprised if someone took a flyer on him late first. Um, I think we might see him early second round would be my guess though. Wow. Yeah, he's going to be an interesting case study to watch. And, you know, on, on the other side, we've talked about the freshmen, and I particularly, and you can full on go against this yeah. if you think otherwise, I don't think the top of this draft is exceptionally deep. Like Cade Cunningham, Evan Mobley, those are two guys I got to watch a lot because they played my Kansas Jayhawks this past <laughs> year. And I got to watch Evan Mobley just destroy my Jayhawks in the NCAA tournament. So that's another conversation. But between those two, you know, they seem to have a very similar skill set, right? Long, lengthy, they can shoot. If you're taking one of those two with the top overall pick in the NBA draft, who is it and why? I'm taking Cade Cunningham. Um, and and the, the big thing with him is that he is one of the rare players that controls the pace of the game. And that's what I truly love about him is that you don't see those guys very often. And when, and when you do – there's just something special. We see it with Luca right now. I mentioned James Harden. He's another guy that controls pace. But it's just such a rare thing where you make it look so simple. And one of the crazy parts about when you, whether you go to an NBA game up close or whether you're attending a workout or a practice, you just see the size of these guys, the skill level, the athletic ability. The game moves so fast. So for a guy to be able to slow all that down and say, okay, we're going to go at the pace that I want to go, uh, it's just, it's remarkable. And it's, I don't want to say it's innate, but it's certainly something that's just such a rare quality. And so to me, that's where Cade Cunningham separates himself. Yeah, there are going to be some questions about how well he shoots it, but I'm not worried about that at all. As you mentioned, great size, great length. He can defend. He's got unbelievable vision. So a lot of comparisons I've heard to, to Luca, to Penny Hardaway, to Grant Hill. He's sort of his own guy. I don't know that he necessarily plays like any of those guys in particular, um, but, or maybe a combination of all of them. But between his length, his size, you know, the guy that's 6'8 and runs the point and um, plays it with his, his kind of pacing, like I said, I think is remarkable. And then, I mean, I got to see Evan Mobley a bunch this year uh, playing for USC. What he does to impact games defensively is just ridiculous. Uh, I love his length. Um, and obviously, he showed an ability for some shooting touch outside. Seen a ton of different comparisons as to who Evan Mobley is. There's questions maybe about his overall motor. But I saw in the Pac-12 tournament, and even the NCAA tournament, when he wanted to will his team to a victory, he could do it. And he always dominated games defensively. So I would say that um, those two guys are certainly, certainly special. But I, I like the top of this draft, quite frankly. Adam, one of the reasons we're so grateful to have you joining us today is that you're actually out in the real world checking some of these guys out. I know you were in Los Angeles a few days ago uh, looking at a few guys working out. You saw Davion Mitchell. You saw Keon Johnson from Tennessee, Daron Sharp, Isaiah Jackson. Any of those guys stand out to you as, as guys that, you know, you, you learned something about that you didn't know before and, and how impressive, who, who impressed you of that group? Yeah, I mean, I, first I would say, uh, I mean, Davion Mitchell and Keon Johnson were, they're already big time pros. Uh, it's remarkable. Davion Mitchell's a little shorter than you think he is in, in person when you, because you see him, he's a grown man uh, and he's strong. I mean, he's big as in terms of being almost barrel chested and, and uh, you know, his, his weight, but, but in terms of his height, he's not particularly tall, but he also understands that. And so a lot of straight line drives, understands how to finish, knows that he can't make mistakes because he's, he's smaller, so he's not going to have the same opportunities. If you give him, in other words, on a drive to the hoop, a little opening in which to, to make a layup or uh, have a floater or if he has to pull up, he's going to t make the right decision, understanding that, uh, that it's just such a rare opportunity that he's going to get one of those little windows to shoot in. Um, and so, but Don McLean, who is actually the guy who works these guys out, 
Um, Don is, uh, people may remember, I mean, Pac-12's all-time leading scorer and, and then played almost a decade in the league, was NBA's most improved player. But he, he really is the top workout guy uh, in the country. And, um, and Don loves Davion Mitchell. He called him to me. He said he's the most professional guard that he's ever had. And he had um, – Oh, man. I mean, uh, he had D'Angelo Russell. He had Devin Booker. He's had, well, a bunch of other bigs. But he, but he also had, you know, in terms of other guards, um, Donovan Mitchell, as I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Luke Kennard. But, but, you know, when it comes to just being an absolute uh, ready, pro-made guy, Davion Mitchell is going to have a terrific NBA career. And then Keon Johnson's a guy that, like, we know he can defend. We saw that at Tennessee incredible athlete i expect him to break records at the combine in terms of his his vert um but more than that he's really improved on a shot rick barnes didn't let him shoot the three a lot of tennessee so he's another guy that i think is going to be an outstanding impact player at the next level so it was it was cool to see both those guys and then and then this kid um roko perkachin um who again making the decision he hasn't decided yet this this croatian can really shoot the ball he's athletic he's big uh, he actually has a good handle too. I don't know that he's going to enter the draft, but if he does, not he's not necessarily ready yet. But in a couple of years, uh, could be a guy that's another big impact guy. So I was really impressed with with those guys in particular. Adam, you know, I keep thinking about Nikola Jokic just winning the league MVP, right? <laughs> Selected 41st overall. And I'm sure you get this question a lot, and I'm sure you hate this question when it's asked. Mm. But for every team who's looking for that diamond in the rough in the second round, who's looking for a potential all-star or MVP like Jokic, is there one person that you would be willing to bet that goes in the second round this year that will be a bona fide all-star in the future? Uh, I don't want to say bona fide all-star. So let's, let's, um, let's say fringe all-star, like, like a Nikola Vucic, like a Vooch type all-star. Yeah. Um, all right. So if we're going to talk about, hmm, I would say a guy, well, I would say a guy that's that people have sort of forgotten about, I would say is, is Charles Bassey from Western Kentucky. At one point in time, again, we're going with a big here. At one point in time, people were talking about him as a potential lottery pick, but that's again, back when we were, we were discussing bigs just two, three years ago as being guys you would take much higher than, than you consider taking now. But, um, you know, Bassey actually has good touch around the basket. He's strong. He understands who he is in terms of his physical, uh, I don't want to say limitations because he's, he's a big, but in terms of a guy that understands, we're going to see a lot of, of pick and roll with him. You're going to see him rebound the basketball really well. So there's, um, there's great potential there. Um, so he'd be one guy that I'd, that I'd say. And then uh, Joe Wieskamp from, from Iowa is another guy that's it's sort of a wing um, – well, he is a wing, but he's, you know, almost 6'6", six, six, uh, can really shoot the ball much more athletic than people think. Um, but quick release, quick trigger, um, uh, could probably, you know, he could bring the ball up if he needs to. But a guy that really is going to be able to score at the NBA level, and I don't think you saw it as much at Iowa, that he really will be able to excel. So those are two guys I would say that I think are, are second-round guys that I'd be really, um, you know, I'd be willing to keep my eye out for because I think they could certainly – um impress at the at the next level so let's say fringe all-star sure let's go there love it love it love the fact that you took the question head on like <laughs> you know that's a, that's a tough one to ask all right real quick and we'll let you go on this one i have to ask you mm-hmm. i went to the university of kansas obviously james naismith was our first coach he's the inventor of the game of basketball <laughs> your twitter handle is naismith lives can you just give me the story about that and then also give me one fantastic bruce bernstein story that you have Oh man. Um, well, yeah, I, I, um, so let me, let me start with, um, uh, with, uh, my Twitter handle. So yeah, I, I, I've always been obsessed with, with just the history of the game, not just, uh, what we see in its, its modern day form, but, uh, my mom actually, um, had, was taught in college. She went to, uh, University of Buffalo and was taught by a professor who was like James Naismith's like, son or grandson or something like that so so she had i'd heard that about james naismith for longer than i should have known about him let's put it that way so i had you know the peach baskets and the, the ymca and springfield mass and the gym and all all those things and obviously you know then the, the kansas ties and, and everything i mean it's just right it gets us so close the game has not been around for that long and so so we get we get to our modern day iteration pretty pretty soon in in terms of uh in terms of history but 
Um, so I was, I was creating a, a website a few years back and um, needed a name for it. And I just thought, mm, what's a way to talk about like James Naismith's sort of aura and presence still, still hovering over the game now. And so that's where it came from. So NaismithLives.com was the website I had. And, uh, and it was short-lived. It was a lot of work. I, I had a bunch of people try to help out and write for it. And that was great. Uh, I should have let them do most of the writing and I would have been fine. I probably still have the site, uh, but, but drop that off. And then, I mean, Bruce Bernstein's stories, I mean, every, everybody that knows Bruce has a, has a hundred of them. Um, that, you know, he introduced me to, to Bill Walton. Um, and it was such a thrill again, as, as somebody who's a hoops historian, and we'd be in rooms and, and Bruce would always, you know, the guys would be so excited. Everybody that, that met Bruce um, during our show meetings, whether it was Byron Scott or Jamal Mashburn or, you know, Magic being around or, or Jalen Rose, of course. And uh, but Bill Walton, I remember being in sort of one of the um, one of the green rooms and Bruce introduces me to him and he says, hey, Bill, I want you to meet Adam Stanko. And he, he sung my praises sort of in the same way. Uh, that that he's doing that he's doing now and um, and it was a huge thrill for me not only just to meet Bill Walton but under the context that here's this person that I know this all-time great respects in Bruce and Bruce is praising me and so that really touched me so that's that's probably my favorite uh, Bruce story but I will say like the amount of guys under Bruce's tutelage who've gone on to be extremely successful and whether that's you know, Todd Capistachi, who did the, you know, Rodman 30 for 30, um, Johnny Sweet, who's gone on, he did the Ron Artest documentary and has done a ton of other things like, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's remarkable the amount of people that Bruce has, has sort of influenced. And, and I certainly feel that way. There's so much I learned from Bruce and anything I accomplish in my career, uh, I, I owe a huge part of it to, to Bruce for sure. Adam, you are much too kind, and you're giving me way more credit than I deserve, although I thank <laughs> you for that. Um, you know, when we first started Pure Hoops Media, you were one of the OGs on this project. And, and you know, it's, it's so great. You know, basketball is such a family, right? I mean, I think it's different than just about every other sport. I think, you know, when it's like once you're in, you're in. And, and, you know, the, the brotherhood and even sisterhood amongst, you know, the, the folks that we work with and we, we, we have our passion for the game. But of all the folks that I've worked with along the way, you are just way, way, way up there as, as one of the shining stars. I thank you for joining Aaron and I today. Continued good luck in everything you do. And I'm hoping that maybe we can have you come back again and we can uh, talk about some of these guys maybe after they get drafted on their teams and see how they're going to fit in because uh, – you know, every show you join, uh, Adam Stanko, makes it a better show. So thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks. And uh, I just, I want to say this has been awesome to be on. It's been fun watching uh, Catch and Shoot 2.0, you know, have the success it has. And, and watching you guys from afar, listening, I should say from afar, but I also watch the clips on, on social and all that stuff. So continued success to you guys. And uh, Aaron, pleasure to meet you. And Bruce, thanks for having me on. That was dope. <laughs> Special thanks to Adam Stanko for joining us. And I'll tell you what, Bruce, it was great to meet him, to hear about, we've heard, I've heard a lot about him on this show for as long as Otto and I have been doing this, which is about a year and a half. So it was good to kind of close that circle to meet him, but also to get his takes on what's going on in NBA circles as far as maybe what's going on with the one and done with the G League Ignite. What did you really take away from that conversation with him? Just that the some people can answer any question and at, you know, they just have this like incredible recall of details and whatever. Yeah. And for a lot of these guys that, you know, he introduced us to some names that we sort of knew, but we didn't really know in any depth. So the fact that he was able to kind of give us this, these layers of information about these guys who we are going to be learning a lot more about soon is a great service. And I hope the folks out there listening appreciate, uh, you know, the, the kind of knowledge that Adam brings. And we hope that, uh, you know, as we said uh, in the segment, uh, we hope to have him back later on in the spring or, or spring. Well, it's not quite summer yet. I guess it's still <laughs> spring. But as we get closer to the draft and maybe even on the back end of the draft, you know, uh, we, we love having Adam around as a resource. So uh, everything you said, I agree with Aaron.
Yeah, it'd be great to hear about how he thinks some of these prospects potentially fit in with their new teams. And plus, you know, I have an entire Orlando market behind me that's intrigued of what's going to happen with their pick and what's going to happen with that Bulls pick that they own. And so they do get two high lottery picks. It'll be interesting to see how he sees them fitting into that roster, which is very much in flux. But that'll do it for today's show. Bruce, great job. Filling in for the one and only Otto. You always do a great job, man. You're, you're, you're basically that. that guy that comes off the bench and hits a home run every time, which is very hard. You know, you can only do that in video games, but you do it live on this show each and every time. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. And as always, a special thanks to our producer. His name is Daniel Kramer for putting this show together each and every week. Our editor is Kristen Woolley. And also big ups to Bruce for filling in this week. As for the rest of the Pure Hoops Media has to offer, the Mike Wise show this week is fantastic. If you have not listened to it, I don't know what you're doing with your life. But Mike has ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter on as he discusses his love for the NBA and Michigan hoops. Full court with Fisher and K has plenty of great college hoops talk each and every week. Monica McNutt and King McCord bring you buckets, boards, and blocks every Thursday. And as always, we round out the week with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman as they have the Pure Hoops podcast on Friday. And I'm back with Otto next Tuesday here on Catch and Shoot 2.0. And we look forward to Otto's return. And I would like to add one additional programming note. Dave's front office, which is not one of our weekly shows, but one of our specialty shows, has an amazing conversation with Golden State Warriors President Rick Welts. Rick is retiring at the end of this month as Golden State President. He is a Hall of Fame executive. He is one of the most influential people in the history of the NBA. And if you listen to Dave's front office from Pure Hoops Media, I think you'll really enjoy that conversation. Now, on to our real-world appreciation at the end of our show. Uh, The vaccinations are still happening. People are getting inoculated. Our big hope is that every single person out there will have the vaccination soon, uh, because as soon as we get everybody on the planet with the COVID vaccine, uh, life will continue back or hopefully getting back to normal. But we're not there yet. So if you're one of those folks who hasn't gotten the vaccine, I hope you do. But if you don't, please wear the mask, protect yourself, protect others. And for all of us, don't forget the medical professionals, the frontline workers, keeping things real and keeping it going for all of us. So for my partner, Aaron Berlin, and and Otto Strong, who we're going to untie and let out of the closet soon, uh, thanks for joining us on this edition of Catch and Shoot 2.0. We'll see you next week. Keep hooping. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.